direct your attention now to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. And we have before us the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. And in this particular episode in the life of Christ, strategically placed just exactly one week before his resurrection, he teaches the people an object lesson. He manifests something, he shows something about his royalty and about the kingdom of heaven. So let's look now to the, the text, Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their clothes and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the ministry of Christ at this point, things are really getting intense. In fact, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he's coming from a little village just outside Jerusalem, a little village where three of his very best friends lived, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. The most visible, the most witnessed and talked about, and the most magnificent miracle or sign of his entire ministry. He had raised dead before, but not like this. This had been accented by Jesus' delay of a, a day or two before he got there. And Lazarus died in the meantime, and folks were upset. And even Jesus on that occasion wept. He wept because it was not only the loss of a friend, but more importantly, he was seeing firsthand the power of death. And Jesus knew he had come to give life and to die a death that would be the death of death. And so as he approaches, the crowds have gathered. Now the crowds are of all sorts of people. It's a mixed multitude. There are disciples. There are believers in the multitude. There are some of the leaders, the Pharisees and the scholars of, of and then they're also part of the temple crowd that is already seeking to betray him. In fact, in the gospel text just before this, it will tell us that they were looking for a way to kill Jesus. They had tried to shut him up. They tried to cause him to quiesce. They tried to discredit him from the peoples. 
respect, but he had, he had taught with such authority and done such miracles that the people were becoming believers. And they were asking, who is this person? In the text here, he says that he is identified as a prophet, a prophet from Nazareth. Well, that fulfills Deuteronomy 18, 18, where God promised Moses that there would come a prophet that would be the prophet, that prophet, that great prophet, who would speak the final word from the Lord, who would bring the final message and who would not be just the word going out in terms of message, but he would be the embodiment of the fulfillment. He would be the very logos of God. So there's the context. Now Jesus is approaching Jerusalem by way of this village and then the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is going to do Something that I remember hearing R.C. Sproul about 20 years ago saying this is the only time that Jesus fixed something, uh, set up something, uh, did a little bit of street theater and, and produced a little drama for the people to see and to be able to unmistakably witness what they were witnessing. Jesus premeditated this where he had arranged for them to have a colt of a donkey and bring them to him for purposes of making a very vivid demonstration. What was going to be the vivid demonstration in that scene? Well, I'll tell you. As, as David is coming to this place, he's going to enter Jerusalem by coming down the Mount of Olives and walking across the valley and approaching the gates and moving up toward the very uh, environs and then finally through the gates of the city and into the center city, and he's going to end up in the temple. That's his route on this particular little trip. What's significant about that route? That's the route that King David took when he entered Jerusalem after having lost Jerusalem. You remember David had a son, Absalom, and Absalom had managed to win favor with the people and evidently was a dynamic personality and a good leader, and he managed to get a large portion of Israel to rebel and so in his sedition against his own father, Absalom had conquered and he had run David out of the city. The advisors to David said, you better get out of the city because he's got the forces. He's going to take the very city of David. So David packs up a team of mules and puts provisions in it and walks with his family and his closest folks and just the band of people that were still with David and they flee the city going out of the city across the valley and up into the Mount of Olives and as they did that they were crying all the way weeping now this won't be the last time a son of David weeps in the Mount of Olives he goes all the way up but then when Absalom is taken care of, and you know the story, and I won't fill it in for you, but David is restored to the throne and comes back into the city. And when he does, he comes back down that mountain, across the valley, and then moving up into the city of Jerusalem. Very, very strong demonstration of what is really actually taking place. Because this is Jesus following in the footsteps of his father, David, his ancestor, David, and he is going to be demonstrating to the people unmistakably that he was their king. That's why that was the main concern when his trial came around. That was the main concern of Pilate, who represented the Roman emperor, is to what extent and what's the nature and how is it that Jesus is a king? 
because he really didn't look like one to see to uh, Pilate. He didn't look like the conquering king. Uh, he was humble, lowly. And what he does here, Jesus sets this up to where he shows uh, a lot of Old Testament uh, imagery sort of packed into one place, uh, starting with the little animal. Uh, David's sons and David himself were famous for riding on a great white mule. You read about it back in the Old Testament in the books of Samuel and Kings. Uh, they were in the hill country. Mules are much more dependable in the hill country than horses. And so they would ride these mules as a symbol of their, their authority and their power. Absalom rode on a mule. You remember even when King Solomon was, was coronated, one of the things they did to give him the authority and the look he needed was they put him on King David's mule. And so this picture of a great white mule. Now, how many of you raised on a farm? Not very many. I, I preached a bunch of city slickers every Sunday morning. <laughs> Well, I wasn't raised on a farm either, but I, I had a lot of the culture in my family, and I visited a lot, and I worked on the farm. A mule is an offspring between a donkey and a horse. And what you have in a mule is a unique animal. The mule is sterile, will not reproduce itself. In order to get one again, you have to have a horse and a donkey. You remember David's predecessor was uh, King Saul, and King Saul's father, Kish, was a keeper of donkeys, and one of the most important things in that ancient world, especially in that hill country of Judea, was that they breed and have mules able to do a certain amount of work. It's incredible what a mule can do. In fact, this country was built on mules. They pulled the coal out of the hills. They pulled the, the uh, trees out of the forest. They plowed the fields. They pulled the wagons. They ran the mills. And you just go down the list of what mules did. Uh, the army of the United States rolled on mules. George Washington himself was a mule breeder. And you have regional mules. You have Georgia mules, Missouri mules. And I'm getting carried away, aren't I, Paula? I got a book about that thick on mules. A friend of mine who breeds mules down in East Texas gave it to me when he heard I was a fanatic on this subject. But, but it's extremely symbolic. To, to have that witness. So what the Lord does in fulfillment, and it specifically says in this text, what he does in fulfillment is he sets up this particular scene to where the people would unmistakably know that this person, Jesus himself, who's raised the dead, who's taught the multitudes, who's performed all these miracles, who's gave countless uh, lessons and sermons and speeches and conversations and discourses, he is now assuming the position that they will know that he is indeed their king. But instead of riding in on a great white mule, which symbolized authority and conquest, Jesus was still in his, what the theologians call his state of humiliation. He was still in his lowliness. And as such, he was not ready to proclaim and show the victory. The victory was yet to be accomplished five days hence. This happened on a Sunday the first day of the week. By Friday, by Thursday night, he was having his last supper with his disciples. By Friday, he was hanging on a cross. By Saturday, he was in a tomb resting on the Sabbath. And then he was raised in great glory before dawn on the first day of the week. On the eighth day, one day later, 
He was, he was raised, and this was the great sign of the power of God and the victory of God. And Jesus was now facing all of those ordeals in the span of one week. And this particular passage that he fulfills, it's, it's very obvious to us, is, is from um, Zechariah. And by the way, as I mentioned these two or three places here where Jesus fulfills prophecy, you'll notice that some are from the book of, of the Old Testament in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he was teaching his disciples? He showed them out of those parts of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures how they referred to him and how he fulfilled those passages in where the Christ, the Messiah, was in the Old Testament. And he taught them that way. Well, this particular episode draws upon images from all of these places. But this one, particularly right here, it says... Um, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And then there's a specific, on a colt. That's the name of the foal of, of, of a horse, the foal of a donkey. In other words, it, it described very subtly there that unique animal that Jesus was was, was writing. A couple of things down through that passage to give it a little bit of context. He says in the next verse, he says, he shall speak peace to the nations. This is the preaching of the gospel of peace, the preparation of the gospel of peace. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And then um, he will vindicate, verse uh, uh, 16 of, of Zechariah 9, he will vindicate their God, that their God will save them as a flock of people and give life to them. He will shine on them. Great is his goodness and great is his beauty. And then if you've heard me say over and over and over again, there's always this mating together in the Old Testament of this particular element. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. It's always the bread and the wine that are coupled together when he's talking about the fulfillment and the blessing and the bounty and the fellowship and the communion of, of what the Lord's ministry will be all about is he brings together all the nations, all the ethnic groups, all the tongues, all of the kindred tribes. He'll bring them all together into one people. There'll be one shepherd, one foal, and one flock that he'll, he'll bring his people together. But an interesting thing, it really goes back a whole lot further than this. I just would be remiss if I didn't mention this. You remember when Jacob, when they were in, in uh, Egypt, and Jacob was an old man, he had his sons there with him and his grandchildren and all of that, and he was about to die. He called his sons in and he blessed each one of them. And there's a blessing pronounced in the 49th chapter of Genesis on each of the sons of Jacob. Well, here's the blessing, part of the blessing upon Judah, the son that was to be the the royal tribe of, of the peoples. Listen to this, this uh, language here. Um, and, and always when you, when you study biblical imagery and biblical prophecy, just let your mind just sort of back up a minute and be a little bit loose. If you're too critically literal and wooden, you'll miss some things. But if you let just imagery sort of flow upon image, you get a clear picture. It, it's like a tapestry. It's like a portrait that is uh, uh, 
painted for us. But listen to part of the blessing upon Judah, which Christ, of course, was the, a descendant of Judah. And Judah was to be the royal tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in white and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Tying together this imagery of the coal. Because remember, in every passage in the, in, in the New Testament, all four Gospels record this episode. The writer makes sure to include Jesus said, untie him. Untie her, rather, the, the, the donkey with the foal. Untie and this is what you see here. He says, he shall untie the, the, uh, the, uh, the foal. Now listen, it ties it to the atonement. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The most prominent sign that Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry was the turning of the water into wine. At which time he took wine, which is the symbol of blood, and made it more abundant than you can possibly imagine. I don't know how many gallons of wine they had there when Jesus turned the water into wine at the Feast of Canaan earlier in John's Gospel. And now here at the end of his earthly ministry, he has another sign. He's tying these two together. The, the riding upon the colt is tied to the making of an atonement. And, and by the way... I try to leave things out because the sermons get so long. But if you go to the book of Revelation, you'll see that when Jesus comes again, the imagery is him upon a great white stallion, which, of course, is a symbol of Roman imperial conquest. And his garments are soaked in blood. We'll let that be there. But you can see how this all ties together. So there is a couple of the Old Testament references to uh, the, this particular episode. In other words, what, what you have here is the people are able to clearly see. When, when they see that little foal and Jesus riding upon that small mule and the, the mother, the donkey, is, is, is led along as well. You see that picture of, of the, the mule train of King David. You see him, but he's not upon a great white mule. He's lowly. He's humble. This phase of Jesus' ministry and his mediatorial work is a part of his humiliation. He comes laying down his life, leaving the throne of glory, becoming a, a, a friend to sinners, having a low estate, and humbles himself all the way to death, the death of the cross even. It's not time for his exaltation. It's not time yet. But his exaltation begins just in a week with the glorious resurrection of Jesus from the grave. So the crowds who had gathered, and as I said, it was a large multitude. Every text in the New Testament in, that records this episode talks about the multitude, how large a crowd it was, very significant number of people. 
And as I said, it was a mixed multitude in terms of what the people thought. But they were asking, how do you respond? And what did the people respond? Well, let me just read the responses to you from the various Gospels real quickly. Matthew 21, the one we're looking at here, they say, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means praise the Lord. I'm sorry, it means the Lord is our salvation. Lord, save us. And it connects the, the one coming in the name of the Lord, the coming one, the Messiah, as the Son of God. And these praises are raised. In, in Mark chapter 11, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. There's a voice in the crowd that really, really got the picture. And then another response is recorded in Luke 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other words, this is the ministry of Christ is to bring this gospel of peace. And he got it. And then John chapter 12, as we read in our reading a moment ago. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Where is this language coming from? Well, it's coming from uh, not the law or the Old Testament in Genesis, not from the, uh, the prophets, Zechariah, but it's coming from the Psalms. And lastly, I want us just to look at that one passage just for a minute as we close. Psalm 118, this is a portion of scripture, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, just before we get to that great Psalm 119, which talks about the word of the Lord, the precepts, the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances of the Lord. That little group of psalms in there starts off in 113 with praise the Lord. And it's the Hallel or the Hallelujah Psalms. And these are psalms that are quoted uh, often in the New Testament. They're the praise psalms. They're the songs the people sing in praise. The, the, the psalm we had in our call to worship and others are the royal psalms that talk about David or the son of David being lifted up upon the throne. But, but listen to just a portion of, of Psalm 118. And I'm going to look at my clock to see just how much of a portion. <laughs> I love feeding the sheep, but I feel like I choke you to death sometimes. <clears throat> just too much out there. Hmm. There's no place to divide this psalm. I just said. Let's just pick right here in the middle. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Where's, where's the Lord headed but through the gate of Jerusalem there? Give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Hosanna, you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We're about to see here just within a matter of, of a few days the rejection of the stone that becomes the cornerstone and the one that the builders disallowed. When the chief priests condemn Jesus, they are disallowing the cornerstone. And yet Jesus goes to become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We say that often on every Sunday and rightly so. But it specifically applies to this particular day of the Lord's life. Save us. 
we pray, O Lord. There's a translation in our text of the Hosanna in the Old Testament. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Jesus came into the world. He's the light of the world. And then finally, this statement right here. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is preparation for the great ceremony. The, the reason the crowds have begun to gather and are moving toward Jerusalem in pilgrimage fashion is it's the Passover. And they've come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus is going to participate in that feast with his disciples. They're going to eat the Passover lamb. But then Jesus is going to raise the cup and he's going to say, I have a cup to drink that you can't drink. And what is that cup? That cup is when he takes the full measure of the wrath of God that's been stored up and been concentrated into a vial of wrath and drinks it all the way down. This is the baptism that you cannot be baptized with. One of the things we do when we baptize our children is it represents the sprinkled blood of Christ upon the soul. And it's a sign and seal of what the Lord has done. But, but finally I say this, bind the, fest, the, fest, the festal sacrifice with cords. You know what they did with Jesus? They bound him and took him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. That happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what happened to the, to the sacrificial animal. They bound him. They bound him to the altar. And there they took his blood. That's what God allowed Christ to do. To be bound to the altar. And to pour out his blood. 